Some of you, the uh, study guide handout might be new, and uh, it does look rather uh, intimidating. <laughs> There's a lot of scripture there. And uh, I don't want this to be uh, like backing up a dump truck of Bible verses and information and just dumping that on everyone. That's exactly what I don't want. But we're going to take a, a little different approach than what I'm usually comfortable with. I like to keep it between three to five verses a lot of times and try to dig in deep. But we're going to take a, a look this morning that would be more like a reconnaissance flight over the city of Jerusalem and be watching over that city during a three-day period 2,000 years ago and looking at individual lives and events that are going on in that city at that time and how they are impacting people's lives. What is happening on the ground as these things begin to unfold? So if, if you get kind of, this seems cumbersome as you're trying to keep up, just set it aside and, and dig into the scriptures that we'll be reading and sharing. And if you have any questions later on, please don't hesitate to ask. I'd, I'd be glad to try to answer what I can. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul wrote, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain, that's a haunting phrase. It's a very dangerous place to be. During this past week, my wife Sherry and I have listened to several stories recounting individuals, couples, families dear to us that at one time appeared to be saved by this gospel that Paul writes about, but have fallen to doubts and temptations, lust of the flesh and the fiery arrows of the enemy, Satan. The results have been heartbreaking with addictions, bitterness, adultery, abuse, divorce, and even criminal charges in some cases. But this same week, we have also rejoiced in the testimony of a young woman who came out of an utterly broken family, utterly broken personal life. And she trusted in Jesus Christ and confessed her sin and repented. And it says that the angels rejoiced over this and so do we. You will hear me repeat many times, we are at war. This is not simply a cultural war or a political war. It's much more than that. This is a war in which the Word of God says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. For victory against such enemies as these, we need the power that gives dead men life. If you think that simply getting into the right church or the right school or using the best curriculum or studying the most effective marriage book, or your home schedule, or catechism, or even family devotions, will ensure your safety and those you love? Think again. How did Paul follow up his conditional statement, unless you believed in vain? How did Paul respond? What was his answer? He goes on to say, therefore, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The gospel has power that changes lives. We will now investigate the lives of specific men and women, who we will find in this book of Luke, chapter 23. We will also visit the gospel of John, and the gospel of Matthew this morning. As we do that, I want to remind you what Paul wrote in Romans 15.4. He wrote there, For whatever was written in earlier times, this book that we have, 
was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of God that you've given to us. It says that it is powerful and active as sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Lord, we know that your word can change. Can not change, but can change us. And we ask that you would lead us nearer to you and that you reveal yourself to us this morning. And we would see you in new ways and we would trust you and we would see your love and your victory. Lord, we're a dense people. I'm a dense man. I, I'm very simple, stubborn, weak. But Father, your word isn't. And we ask that you would fill us with you, with your Holy Spirit, and teach us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We will begin with the impact of Christ's death. Luke 23, verses 44 through 49. And the first thing we're going to look at here is Christ's death had an impact upon the natural world. Verse 44, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened. That sixth hour was noon, 12 noon. The third hour is 3 p.m. That means we had three hours of utter complete darkness. When? At the midday, at the zenith of the sun. When it should have been its brightest. Now to explain this away as a natural solar eclipse is impossible. The Jews used a lunar calendar. Passover always occurred on the full moon, which rules out a solar eclipse. Three hours of darkness is also much longer than any recorded solar eclipse. Now some will attribute the darkness to the prince of darkness, Satan, gaining power at the moment of Jesus' execution. But Satan has no such power over the natural world, let alone the events of Jesus' execution. He could not impact what God was doing for the Son of God. This history-changing event was God's doing, not Satan's. Nor, nor was this darkness the absence of God. Joel chapter 2 verse 1 says, Blow ye the trumpets in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains. Amos Chapter 5, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. Zephaniah 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath. A day of trouble and distress. A day of wasteness and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. One commentator wrote, God took center stage for Christ's final three hours on the cross. His presence at Calvary is often overlooked. But it is only when God arrived that Calvary became the saving event that it was. God's wrath poured out on His Son as He bore sin is in fact the major reality of Calvary. That happened in the hours of darkness. End quote. The earth was darkened because the great judgment of God was upon the earth as a simultaneous presence of great sin was upon the dying Christ, the Son of God. Another comment. God arrived in the blackness at Calvary that day to unleash judgment. Not in an eschatological sense against the ungodly, but in a soteriological sense, that means for a saving purpose, against his very own son. But judgment's darkness was not the only supernatural declaration. There was a far surpassing impact upon mankind. Verse 45 goes on to read, And the veil of the temple was torn in two. The barrier was removed. Matthew and Mark say, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What was this curtain, this veil? 
Well, there was a massive curtain stretching 30 feet from floor to ceiling in the inner chamber of the temple. 30 feet, mind you. If we go from the center of the floor here to the ceiling, I was told that is 24 feet. That curtain was another six feet higher. Huge, massive curtain. It was a thickness of about three and a half inches or the width of a man's hand. In Second Chronicles, it tells us that it was beautiful. It was woven of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen. And within it, there were these cherubim creatures that were woven. The gigantic veil separated the spiritual heart of the temple that is called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant lay. And it was separated from the rest of the temple. No one was allowed past the veil into the Holy of Holies. It could only be accessed once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. On that day, according to Hebrews 9-7, the high priest would enter alone through the curtain with a bowl of sacrificial blood to be sprinkled on the altar for the sins of the people and for his sins as well. That curtain separated the holy presence of God from direct contact with man. But we read here that God ripped that massive curtain from top to bottom. And it displayed a supernatural power that declared that the barrier between himself and man was destroyed by, God, by Christ's atoning death on the cross. The barrier was gone. It was destroyed. Hebrews chapter 10 reads, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. No longer would a priest have to enter through this thick, massive, gigantic veil with this warm bowl of blood. The veil was done away with and it was his flesh, Christ figuratively, that we now have entered into the Holy of Holies. We are there face to face in the presence of God. <clears throat> Not only was the veil destroyed, but the life of the Lamb of God was offered. Verse 46 and reads, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Jesus' final shout from the cross echoes the prophecy given in Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit, wrote the psalmist. And this description of Jesus' death is quite unique. It says that he did what? He breathed his last. It is used in scripture only to describe the death of Jesus. No other death in all of the Bible is depicted as he breathed his last. It is completely unique to Christ. And here is why. We marvel on resurrection day at what? The power of Jesus Christ to raise himself from the dead. But we often ignore his authority to end his life. Jesus foretold this in John chapter 10. He said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In other words, Jesus died when he finished his work on the cross and chose to die. Not one second sooner, well not one second later. But right on his time schedule when he was completed with his work. One author wrote, this man took death by his own will and made it his servant. Isn't that amazing? And there was impact upon specific men and women at Jesus' death. First of all, we have the centurion. Now centurions were seasoned military commanders over 100 Roman soldiers. This specific centurion was responsible for the execution squad that was carrying out crucifixions in Jerusalem that day. Quite likely, this was just one of several that he had supervised during his work week. But this one he would never forget. Mark chapter 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. The centurion said, truly, this man was a son of God. Luke goes on in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Matthew chapter 27, 54 describes with a broader scope. It says, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the son of God. Violent fear gripped these hardened Roman killers. Earlier that afternoon, and we studied this last week, a miracle had transformed a dying criminal to recognize Jesus as the Son of God as they hung there side by side on crosses. Now, we see a hardened Roman centurion. Suffering and pain were obviously not new to him. That was his job description. Death was commonplace. In fact, it was the mark of a successful day of work. But the suffering and death of Jesus, the earthquake and the darkness seized him. It says it seized him with great fear. Why? Why? Was it just the oddity of all the things happening around him? That the unique way that Jesus approached crucifixion. Was it these things? I will tell you, it is because he realized he had just executed God's son. He was gripped with fear because he had crucified God's son. The Holy Spirit produced fear of God, caused him to literally glorify God. Like the thief dying on the cross beside Jesus, this executioner looked up to Jesus on the cross and saw what none of the religious leaders and very few others could see. The centurion believed on Jesus Christ as the righteous Son of God and was saved. These men that we keep seeing at the cross, we have this thief, a murderer, a robber, who is cursing and mocking Christ, and God takes his life and turns him into a Son of God. It's unbelievable what God can do. And we have this centurion. He's made his living in battlefields. He's come to this point now. He executes people continuously. And he looks up and sees, this is the Son of God. You see the scope of Christ's love? It is unlimited. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. If you will look upon him as the Son of God and trust in him, you will be his and he will be yours. This specifically seems to answer perhaps Jesus' prayer from the cross earlier that afternoon. Remember what he prayed? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Then there was the group also there, the defeated. Verse 48 says, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. The crowd was stricken. His death had only tormented them even more. Their hearts ached with emptiness and frustration. They had hoped for a king. Earlier that week, many thought the long-awaited Messiah had arrived in the city of David. But by the end of the week that hero was beaten and absolutely subdued he was now 
an enemy of their own religious establishment as well, and an enemy of the occupier Rome. He was a victim, not a victorious leader. He was another casualty, not a savior. In deep, dark sorrow, these disillusioned men and women walk home beating their chests. The dream of glorious liberation from Rome had given way to a bizarre execution of their weak, mistaken Messiah. They were left confused and defeated. Also, we have the women. Verse 49, the group of women and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The women are listed by Matthew as those that followed and served Jesus in Galilee. It included Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, the mother of Zebedee's children. Focus, focus on this. They were here. They were faithful. They had no inside info of what was going on to give them a great amount of courage. They were heartbroken. But they didn't run. The apostles, they're hiding. But these women walked step by step as best they could near Jesus. Near Jesus at the cross. Jesus spoke to his mother and to John. Now they stand afar off some distance after his death. They're always somewhere in the picture. Near and watching so they would know where the body would be buried. Then they're preparing spices and oils for Jesus' dead body. And really it's the only way left that they have. That they know how to show love to their departed dear friend Jesus. And then it says they were obedient. They are waiting on the Sabbath before returning the next day to prepare his body for burial. The second piece of the gospel Paul wrote was Christ's burial. Sometimes we just pass that through almost like it's some sort of a cushion between his death and his resurrection. There's much here. The impact of Christ's burial. We have the growing faith of Joseph. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in a stone where no one had yet been laid. This man Joseph, we know quite a bit about him. He is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. He is identified as a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the supreme court of the Jewish nation. And that supreme court had just falsely tried, not convicted, but then sentenced Jesus to death. Joseph is also described as a good and just man. Luke clarifies that Joseph, although he was part of the Sanhedrin, had gone against the decision of the Sanhedrin and their treatment of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Joseph was shown to be a disciple, but it says secretly because of his fear for the Jews. And then Luke says that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that's another way of saying that he believed Jesus to be the promised Messiah. But you see, at this moment in time, Joseph wasn't the only Jewish leader who had gone to speak with Pilate that day. The Gospel of John relates, since it was a day of preparation, and that was preparation for the Passover celebration, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Perhaps only within the last several minutes, Joseph's fellow Sanhedrin members had asked Pilate to break Jesus' legs so they could speed up his death and get this over with. But the need to bury Jesus pressed Joseph to a much different request than his religious council members. Joseph goes to Pilate, and he has been a fearful secret disciple, but we now witness another miraculous transformation. We had the thief, we had the centurion, now look at this man. He boldly came before Pilate. Roman law held that a man condemned to death lost his right to burial. They would leave them hanging on the cross, hopefully for vultures and others to eat and get this out of here. But they would leave them. 
The Sanhedrin had pressured and manipulated Pilate into pronouncing a death sentence on Jesus without a conviction of guilt. And now one of the Sanhedrin's own, Joseph, has come to Pilate, the Roman authority, and he is showing sympathy for the Sanhedrin's victim. Pilate's probably scratching his head, what is going on here? And this man, Joseph, is seeking to take Jesus' lifeless body and give it an honorable burial. You see, Pilate could have made this a very bad decision for Joseph. But Joseph didn't care. He went where God led him. Then he is bold before the Sanhedrin. Obviously, the Jewish leaders would consider it the height of folly, perhaps even mutiny, that Joseph would now bring honor to the death of the man they had just murdered. The death and now burial of Jesus touched the heart of Joseph. And brought him to courage and conviction. He boldly goes to the Roman authority and lovingly took the body of Jesus. And he wrapped it in burial linen and laid the body of Jesus in his very own tomb. Now this is an amazing display of courage and of love. But it is even more than that. Alongside this powerful transformation of the life of Joseph. Is the providence of God in fulfilling prophecy. Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph was a rich man and that he had a new burial tomb that was empty. Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked as he was being executed, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. He is buried in a rich man's tomb. And then again, we have the faithful women. Verse 54. And that day was a preparation and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. We have a lot of slanderous little comments about uh, Courageous men and don't be like a woman. Brothers, be like a woman if you're faithful. Don't run. These women amaze me every time I read these accounts. Every time. Once again, as in verse 49, we see in the background a moving cloud of Galilean woman, women who love Christ and they are faithfully following even to the place of burial. Now, now we come to the third piece of Paul's gospel. It's why we celebrate this resurrection day, this Easter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. We will now look at the impact of Christ's resurrection. Before we look at this last piece, though, I want you to understand something. And I had this picture in my mind, and I said, no, I'm not going to go there. It may be a little too macabre or, or strange. But, but we need to keep in mind that these disciples did not leave that situation or now gathered in, in a coffee shop somewhere or a, uh, some sort of a lounge here and they're praying and singing and just waiting for Jesus to come knocking on the door. Not at all. These men are defeated. They are afraid. Will they be next? They are hiding. Jesus is dead. They're trying to wrap their minds around the life that suddenly collapsed really in just about six days. All around them, everything is gone. It's over. The one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's dead. He's in a tomb. What kind of a way, truth, and life was that? I'd like to read from John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Did she think he was resurrected? No. She thought the grave had been robbed. She knew something was wrong, but was anybody thinking, oh, wow, the prophecies are answered? No. They think he's dead, and now he's been robbed. Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. 
So they both ran together, and the, both, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their homes, and, and keep in mind that John is writing this several years after the event, and he looks back and he sees this, and, and he knows that at that moment something clicked, something happened. But at the moment, he, he's also saying, but we did not know, we did not realize the scriptures that said he must be risen from the dead. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine that moment? Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. And to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord. And that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week. When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them. Peace be with you. And when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In a world dominated by sin and death, then and now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was and is the absolute necessity for anyone to have true hope. Before it ever happened, the resurrection was prophesied and preached throughout the New Testament. Jesus preached his own resurrection. John the Baptist preached Jesus' resurrection. Peter preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul laid everything on the line, declaring that all he preached, wrote, and did depended upon Christ being resurrected from the dead. This indispensable role of Christ's resurrection did not go unnoticed nor unchallenged by Jesus' enemies. Objections sprang up immediately, and they persist to this very day. During this past few weeks, I've enjoyed several conversations centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In many of these, someone listening in might have thought, well, the disagreements were that Jesus didn't die on the cross, or he wasn't really the Son of God, or the scriptures are corrupt, mythical, and stories of mere men. But really, the underlying truth opposed is the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ didn't rise from the grave then his death on the cross, though noble to some, is a cruel waste. His claims to be the Son of God were the foolish boasts of a madman. And the greatest scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are manipulative propaganda. But, if he did come back to life, out of death, then the death, burial, and resurrection of this man, known throughout history as Jesus it paints one of the most brilliant masterpieces you can imagine. It's obvious. It is obvious that if the resurrection were a hoax, it would be devastating. How devastating? 
How devastating would that be? Let's look briefly at the consequences if the resurrection were a lie. Resurrection deniers continuously opposed the Apostle Paul. But he met their arguments like a charging bull head on. He never downplayed the significance of the resurrection. In fact, he actually raised the stakes even higher if the resurrection turned out to be a sham. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13. And as I read Paul's response to these no resurrection opponents, watch how Paul himself he doesn't back down. He puts the spotlight on at least seven consequences if the resurrection is a lie. Verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ. We are most of all men most miserable. If Christ didn't raise from the dead. If Christ is not resurrected, he is not risen. Your pre our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are found to be liars. We are still in our sin. And those who have died before us, believing in Christ, are perishing. And we're fools. We're the most miserable of men. Why would Paul go to such length to lift that up like that? You see, some have foolishly said, well, even if, even if it turns out Jesus was not resurrected... It would be better to have followed his example of a humble, loving life than to live for my own selfish pleasure. That sounds noble, doesn't it? Don't try that stuff on Paul. To him, it is absurd. His total purpose in life depended upon the resurrection. We're not talking about a moral exercise. In fact, Paul's beaten and wounded body was steadily being destroyed because of his commitment to the resurrection. He once wrote a letter to believers in the city of Corinth describing his ministry. I was a keynote speaker at the Corinth Bible Conference for three days and then lectured while on a seven-day Torah cruise in the Red Sea describing Moses' parting of the waters and other miracles. The food was fabulous. Spent a week by myself up at Camp Tarsus to recoup and get some time alone with God. The cabins were plush. Have several interviews this week with major bloggers and online ministry sites. Hope to get some time away to work on my upcoming book to be published in about six months. That sound like the life of Paul? That's absurd. It was nothing like this. This is the letter he wrote. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times. I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. How could you live? I mean, how, how could the man still be going from city to city and preaching? Greater is the question is why? Why would he do such thing if... This was what he would receive. Prior to repenting and following Christ, Paul was the prominent religious leader of Israel. To give up such prestige, comfort, wealth and power for that kind of pain and suffering and then to exhort others to come down that, safe path, that same path all for the sentimental honor of a dead man 
What a fool Paul would have been. A pitiful, deluded, useless fool. But, but, says Paul in verse 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are, who are asleep. But, it's, it's a word, we call it an adversative. It means it shows something directly opposite to what had just been stated. What had been stated by Paul is, if Christ be not resurrected, but now, even now is in a prolonged form to add emphasis. If Christ be not resurrected, but now, and the extreme opposite is the Christ, Christ is risen from the dead. This resurrection of Christ is a great treasure. It's a chest bursting open and overflowing with gifts from God for all who believe. What does it contain? I want to give us eight powerful eternal gifts contained in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why was it so important? First of all, we have prophecy fulfilled. From the Old Testament, here are four. And the unique thing about this is they are made crystal clear because they are interpreted by the New Testament itself. We are not making some calculated or hopeful interpretation. The New Testament explicitly says this Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus Christ being raised to life from the dead. The first one, prophecy from Psalm 2 verse 7. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We go to Acts chapter 13 in the New Testament where it is realized. There we read, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Second prophecy. Isaiah 55 verse 3. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. We go to the New Testament. Acts chapter 13 verse 34. And that he raised him up from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Acts 13 verse 34 explains to us that the sure mercies of David mentioned in Isaiah 55 is referring to the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I for one would not have been able to tie that together. But the New Testament does that for us. That is what that prophecy was about. Third prophecy, Psalm 16 verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Acts 13 verse 35. Therefore he also says in another psalm. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. Fell asleep and was laid among his fathers. And he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Fourth prophecy from Psalm 19, excuse me, 110 verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Where would that come in the New Testament? Acts chapter 2 verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up which we are all witnesses Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Once more the New Testament shows that David's Lord points to this Jesus God raised up. Now in addition to the Old Testament prophecies of the resurrection, there are prophecies from Jesus made about himself. Jesus' prophecy in John chapter 2, verse 18. Though Then so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. End quote. 
Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Mark chapter 9, Jesus again says, then it says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will raise the third day. Jesus knew what would come. A second powerful gift of Christ's resurrection is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was given to us, Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. A third gift, faith to believe the Word of God. John chapter 2, Therefore, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them, and they believed the Scriptures and the Word which Jesus had said. The resurrection also gives us justification before God. Now that sounds like a religious piece of um, terminology. Then maybe we're thinking, okay, great. Justification is so crucial. What that means is we are sinners. We are filthy. We have no right to be able to come before God. We cannot stand in His presence. But God justifies us. That means He makes us right before Himself, which only He could do. Romans 5 says that we were helpless. We were powerless to do anything. But Christ died for us. Justification before God. Forensically, legally, we are made righteous before God. That means you and I, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> we have no guilt for our sin. The penalty is completely removed. People hearing the gospel have a hard time with that. What do you mean you have no guilt? Are you getting off that easy, that free? It wasn't free and it wasn't easy. The Son of God died so that that could happen. And he took our sins upon himself. And during that three hours of darkness where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not deranged. He was separated from the Father for a period of time that had never occurred in all of eternity before nor after. But the holy righteous God, His Father, could not be in the presence of His Son who was laden, filled, saturated with our filth and sin. And not only that, He poured His wrath upon that Son and killed Him. Sacrificed Him. So that we would have our sins paid for. We are justified. And the resurrection confirms this. Romans 4 verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone. That's Abraham. That it was imputed to him. But for us also. To whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him. That raised up Jesus from the dead. Who was delivered for our offenses. And was raised again. For our justification. You see, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our sin remains. And we are guilty of crimes against God. And His wrath awaits. If Jesus is still dead, His work on the cross was not enough. And we are eternally shipwrecked. We are hopeless if that is the case. But the resurrection did occur. And it established that believers are right with God. He accepts us because we are covered with the righteousness of His Son. The just condemnation of death for our sin was completely paid for by Jesus' death. When I'm buying lunch sometimes, and I, I go, I pay for it, and the person behind the counter will ask me, would you like a receipt for that? And generally I said, yeah, that'd be good, because I'm thinking, well, if they forget my order, I can prove that I bought it, and that kind of a thing. Far deeper than that is the proof that our sins were paid for. And the receipt, the living receipt of that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It is a condemnation that your sins are completely paid for. Hang on to that receipt. It is Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The resurrection is a proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work that His Son did upon the cross. R.C. Sproul said the resurrection of Jesus 
is not simply for his vindication. It is for our justification. Because it is God's demonstration to his unjust people that he accepts the payment in full for the moral debt they have incurred. Fifth gift is eternal life. John 14. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, Jesus said. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. Romans 6. Therefore we were buried with them through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, we also shall walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Eternal life. Now here comes one of my, that's probably as dear to my heart as anything, because I'm still mortal in this flesh. The sixth gift is intercession from Christ. The word intercede means to bring a petition to a king or a governor on behalf of someone else. Christ comes before God, the great king, on our behalf. He speaks to the Father in our defense. Hebrews 7 verse 24, But he, because he continues forever, without death, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8:34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Speaking, he is standing for us with his Father. Seventh, the confirmation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The resurrection shows in Romans 1, it's written concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection of the dead. And now for the final gift of the resurrection. And I know there are many more. In fact, I think it was last year or year before I preached and enlisted 12. But I'm not going to go that long this morning. The eighth. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. The final gift of the resurrection. Beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to draw, or as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Observe here the amazing opportunity God sets before these faithful women. And notice, they are not hiding behind locked doors or paralyzed in mourning. They were going to do the only next thing they could for their dead and departed best friend Jesus. They were going. Verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly. And tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, watch what these women do with this opportunity. Watch what they do. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The faithful women. They witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They reported the truth. They were taken with fear, but also great joy. And they worshipped the risen Jesus, and they obeyed quickly. They received opportunity and they seized it for the glory of Christ. Will you do that? 
Will you take the opportunity that God continually brings before you? Will you seize it for the glory of Jesus Christ? The Roman guards at the tomb. The Roman guard, supplied by Pilate at the tomb, were so terrified, they literally shook with fear. It says they became like dead men, struck by terror. They were not merely frozen with fear, but it looks as if they were completely unconscious because of the trauma that they had witnessed. <clears throat> Eventually they come to, and here's their testimony. Verse 11. While they, while the women were going in obedience to what they were told, Behold, some of the guard went into the city. And they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The guards at the tomb. They witnessed the resurrection event. And to their credit they reported the truth. But here is where the choices of the Roman soldiers veer sharply away from the path chosen by the women. They received a bribe and a threat. And if you look at what's written there you see the bribe easily. But do you, do, do you see the threat? If you do these things, we will make sure that you're okay. If you don't, we know what could happen to you. A bribe and a threat. Then they told a lie. And in telling a lie, they suppressed the truth. And they obtained momentary security and eternal damnation. You see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ could not have been stopped. It could not have been any way slowed for a moment by Satan and all of his demons or all mankind that had gathered together to defeat it. Acts chapter 2 verse 22 reads, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The masses had gathered with their intents in mind, with their motivation and purpose. But what do they end up doing? The design of God's will. Acts 17 Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this, this assurance that he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By the receipt. By raising Jesus from the dead. That eighth gift of the resurrection is to give opportunity to confess or deny Christ to the world in which we live. Do you see yourself as a Joseph or a centurion or as the women, as the guard? Where do you see yourself? You know this truth. If you believe it, tell it. If you really believe this is the only hope men and women have for eternity and their only escape from eternity of damnation, the only opportunity to become an adopted son of God, if you believe that, tell it. 
We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. He has chosen what may seem like a very odd tool, but it is you and I to tell the most wonderful news the world could ever hear and the most necessary. Praise God. He is risen. He is risen. Does it make a difference? Let's do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, you are the most high God. And you, you saw, you've seen every filthy, wicked thing my mind has ever produced and my hands have ever wrought. Every action I've taken. As well as my brothers and sisters here, my friends here. As well as all men, and yet you chose to send your son. You immersed him in this filthy, wretched world. He gave up his glory so that he would come here and live and die and be buried and raise again so that we could be yours. Thank you, Lord God. It is the most amazing, amazing, wise, powerful plan that could ever be known. Help us to understand it more deeply. And Lord, give us a boldness. May we be like a Joseph. May we, may we kiss goodbye to the Sanhedrin and draw near to Jesus. May we be like the centurion who is gripped with the terror of what he has just done and then sees that this is the Son of God and proclaims it. Lord, may we be like the women, faithful, drawing near, seeing every opportunity to do what we can at the time we have. The Lord, be glorified in us and show us your grace and mercy. Just bathe us in that so that we respond with, with love and good works for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.